Whiskey on the Weekends, part two of an episode being recorded on September 22nd. I am joined by my buddy, my pal, my best friend, Boston Celtic, Baxter Levi. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. What's up? Spencer, you awake? Still awake. Looking forward to more drinking. How's California? Uh, it, it's lovely now. It was uh, quite overcast when we started recording, but uh, fog has burned off and it's it's beautiful. Poor thing. Did you say the fog is burned off? <laughs> you did say that. Yes. Sounds right. <laughs> okay. That is the process. All right. In the first episode, we tried a Japanese whiskey. What was the name of that one again, Levi? Kaios. Uh, K-A-I-Y-O. And the second one we're going to try in this episode, Levi also provided. Levi, you want to talk us through what it is? Yes, this is a um, a rare release from the Willet Distillery. It is a straight uh, rye whiskey. Um, it is a, a, a actually a really, really good whiskey, in my opinion. Ooh, I've had rye. a little bit before this. Um, I, I'm very interested to see what you guys' thoughts are, because I thought it was extremely smooth. There's not a, not a crap ton of complexity there, but it's a very, very good rye, in my opinion. Say, like, okay. this is a delicious rye. So one of the things that people talk about with ryes is that they're spicy, that like the rye adds a spiciness. And a lot of ryes that I've had in the past, like even at the 50-ish price point, still have a harshness that a lot of bourbons have at lower price points. So I would say like 20 to $30 bourbons and, and some Tennessee whiskeys still have like a lot of that uh, Spencer's term of a campfire burn back in the day. Um, that he graduated. I still use that <laughs> well enough. Um, and I feel like Rise Hold. I really like it. This might be the best whiskey we've tried on Whiskey on the Weekends. I'm trying to rack my brain for something I like more, but I don't think I can find it. Uh, it's smooth. Uh, I'm getting a lot of. Um, really balanced flavors um, because I also do get the spicy on the back end. It reminds you of the rye, uh, but it's not too much. Um, it's not so smooth. I feel like they added caramel or something to water it down. Still got a little punch to it. Um, shout out to you, Levi. Great pick here. I did really like the Kentucky or, or, or the wild uh, turkey Kentucky spirit that we had. Um, really good whiskey. Oh, yeah, that's up there too. Yeah, yeah, good call. But this one is very smooth. This is just a you know something I, I happened upon in one of my local uh, liquor stores, and I'm I'm very impressed. I will definitely be buying another bottle just to have around. Um, because when I when I tried it um, after I got it, I was like, I just want to make sure that it wasn't absolute hogwash before sending it to you guys. Um, I tried it. and was like, well, this is this is so smooth. This is dangerously smooth. Yeah, this is something like a perfect whiskey for me. Like after dinner, two fingers sitting on the porch or something. Um, I was going to say, like, it, it it tastes like a little bit nutty and a little stone fruit. Mm -hmm. That, like, sweet, sort of almost heavy sweetness, but, like, it's not cloying. And it's just, I really like it. So what's the uh, the price point on this guy? Uh, my memory is that it was in the upper 60s, maybe lower 70s uh, range. Okay. That that tracks, but Very that's reasonable. really good. Yeah, it, it's a reasonable price for how for how good it is. Spencer, mm -hmm. um, this is possibly my favorite one we've tried in this entire podcast. This is oh, this is really impressive of where the smell. It's got a kind of a mix of fruity with the alcohol kind of smell. Um, it is. I took I took too big of a gulp of it. I when I was first tasting it, and it had a, almost like a pop sensation of when it went in my mouth. Of where there is a definite spice undertaste is a mix of nutty and fruit that is just delightful and it just makes for the most smooth experience this is really damn good this is one of the better things i've tasted in a while and yeah this is really one of the this is gotta be one for me one of the top three that we've done the entire podcast this is really good call levi i agree and the thing that's hitting me <clears throat> as i keep sipping it is everything that you know, Spencer, you and BJ talked about, you know, calling out specific flavor elements. I'm, I'm getting, but it's so balanced. Like it's everything is kind of working together. Wonderful, man. Um, which I really appreciate. Yep. Thank you, Levi. This is really, really good. Very much appreciate this. Better than that American honey I sent you. 
You know, I'm just still yes. speaking defense of the American honey. I enjoyed it when I first tried it and then found that it would not get off my tongue or the back of my mouth. That thing was a coat that never left. <laughs> and I really left something on the table the last time we did this where I sent out the Japanese whiskeys. Cause I, I, and I, I can't do it now. I'm, I'm spoiling it, but I needed, I really should have, when we tried the second one, it said, Spencer, what you had was. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you played that card once and God, that was a I dick move. Left, left it on the table. I don't know what I'm saying. saying. And you're just putting me out there. Just public scorn. Why man? Why? I don't think I could do it now, to be honest with you. Now I think you're, I mean, you, you, when you're talking, you're tasting and talking about these whiskeys. I think you're, you're right there with us. So I don't, I don't know if I could pull one over on you again. I watch it. I'm sure you could. I am right. interested in what you guys thought of, of the bottle is because so I, this was sort of a referral from, from one of the guys who was working at the, the, the whiskey store um, who, by the way, I don't know a whole lot about whiskey. I'm, I'm nowhere near BJ. I'm nowhere near, near Terry, but I was like picking up whiskeys and looking at eh, Vermont, um, which by the way, I may do like a Vermont whiskey uh, thing down the road. Um, but I, I wasn't willing to um, commit to, to that full thing. Also, by the way, there is a, a, there's a expensive for, for, for a risk, but there's a $70 Indian whiskey um, at, at, at one of the local stores. I want to try. Like from India? Uh, from India, yeah. I've never heard of Indian whiskey before, actually. I didn't know it was a category. Neither did I. He was explaining that uh, they they got it in once, and there's this uh, rich Indian guy who lives lives in the area and generally comes in and just buys up their entire stock whenever they get it. Um, <laughs> Customer in mind. Is it um, keep stocking it. AMRUT? It might be. Okay. I don't remember the exact name. Um, I, I remember the placement in, in the liquor store, but I, I don't remember the name of it. Um, but the uh, the logo to me is like, it seems hokey almost. That is hokey. It, yeah, I, I also yeah. feel like it's kind of like UK coat of arms. It's definitely coat of arms, but it just seems like, to that. Yes, it, it's sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> so judgy, Spencer. I love it. Judging this, that is a hokey little logo. Um, but it is it's quite delicious. So Spencer, I'm glad. Um, I will see if I can try to uh, get you some, so you can have some, have some for normal sipping. I know both both Terry and BJ would love that as well, but you you especially uniquely would love something. It's so rare that I actually find a whiskey that I would think that I will enjoy this outside of this podcast, where this is something that I actually might enjoy when I come home to have a glass of this as I'm coming down from the day. But this very much falls in that category of where I can see this is beginning a very pleasant evening of resting and relaxing i think there were three that you've said that about on the pod and it was like black saddle mm -hmm. the, the peated scotch that this is very much with those three were far and away my favorite of where this is something i would very much enjoy on my own time and is it something you'd buy this is something i would buy happily i would want to actually share this so that people to see their thoughts on it i i okay. love i like cool. things that you've said that about are very different parts of the whiskey spectrum and i it just it makes me very happy that like you now pick things that that are a broad spectrum of whiskeys that that it isn't just like you like very you know reasonably well-aged smooth pleasant and like not too much else there whiskeys but like things that have depth and character Oh, BJ, our little boy, all grown up. Again, you guys are actually helping my professional career with this knowledge of whiskey <laughs> and bourbon you guys are putting on me. Of where I'm actually able, when we're at, at, at events, to order an appropriate drink that everyone goes, wow, that is a really interesting flavor. We enjoy that. Where I did that with Blanton's, which apparently the entire room had not had before. And then I also did that with Black Saddle recently, of where they went, man, that's, that's a really good recommendation. You really know your stuff. I'm like, can't leave I leave. <laughs> is a little surprising that that they hadn't come across that never even um, heard of it right they they had uh one of them i was like three or four people they one of them had heard of it before but had never tried it and then i asked whether they had blanton's and they had of course the single bottle that the bar had and they poured us a, a series of very expensive little uh sips of it and they were over the moon about it it was like they were going to go try to find it when they got back home to the various farms to try to offer it to other people is that spencer I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, wrote 
Spencer, <laughs> that is marketing. Spencer, I was going to say, I, I marketing. I, I, I love would, it. Yeah, I would accept uh, buying buying drinks at a bar if you if you exceeded the that that hundred dollar bar. But if you're going to expense it, I feel like that's that's just not not this. That didn't make my credit card because I expensed it right away. That was the kind of thing it was going with for that one. But funny. Okay. All right. Well, I have a story for you guys if you're ready for it. Yeah. Um, I recently went to Asheville. So Sarah and I, uh, my wife, we we go to Asheville probably once every two or three months. It's our favorite city in North Carolina. And we went um a couple weekends ago, and they happened to be having a food festival called Chow Chow. It was the first year of it. I'd never heard of it before, but Sarah stumbled across it when she was kind of like Googling stuff to do for that weekend. And we found a session that was being led by a guy named Gary Crunkleton. And this is the guy who owns the Crunkleton bar in Chapel Hill that we've all been to. I actually held my uh, wedding rehearsal dinner there. It's a really nice place. Yeah, it's very nice. Uh, and he was doing a, was billed as a sort of taste of North Carolina liquor session, just like kind of telling the history of North Carolina through liquor. So we said, all right, we'll go to that. It sounds fun. Um, we got there and Gary made it uh, apparent right away that the whole thing of it's a taste of North Carolina was just a gimmick for him to be able to give us what he wanted to give us, which was actually <laughs> antique, super old, rare whiskey that he had found. God knows how he sourced it. We, we kept poking holes in like, how did you find this stuff? And he wouldn't tell us, obviously. So we started with moonshine and apple brandy. And apple brandy two of the probably the most popular liquors throughout North Carolina's history. He banged that out in about 10 minutes and said, okay, boom, now we're done with the history part. Let's try these antique liquors. So I had no frame of reference for this. I had no idea what to expect. We had three different types of, I'm going to call them antique liquors. I don't know if that's a proper term or not, but the first one is a type of whiskey called Paul Jones. And it was bottled in 1906 Gary was unaware when it was actually distilled. Um, apparently whiskeys in that era um, were aged a lot longer than our commercial whiskeys are now. And that's because the demand of whiskey wasn't where it is now. Most people were beer drinkers back then. So it wasn't as difficult for them to put something in a barrel for 15 years. And they didn't have that sort of commercial pressure to be, you know, churning through it and, and, and bottling very quickly. So he suspects it's anywhere between 12 and 15 years before 1906 when it was actually distilled. So you're talking now the liquor is <laughs> actually distilled. 19th century. 19th century, right? Um, and I tried it. I didn't really know what to expect. And it was phenomenal. And I, I know it sounds like Le Levi's probably over there, like immediately being skeptical. Uh, but it was really, really good. And everybody in the room had the same reaction that it was very, very smooth, um, had a depth of flavor to it. It's not like, you know, I think some people would get a whiskey that old and think, oh, it went bad or something. Of course, it doesn't go bad. It's liquor. And it was extremely good. Um, it was, again, bottled in 1906. And the pour that Gary gave us, he sells in the Crunkleton in Chapel Hill for $375. So one pour, one shot, $375. Wow. Yeah. Pretty damn cool. I'm going to go through two more that we did. And then I'm going to try to provide, because we asked him the very pointed question. Hey, Gary, this doesn't look like it was particularly expensive at the time. Why is it so good to us? Did it, did it age in the bottle or do something? And he gave us an answer, which I'm going to try to explain to you guys. The second one we got, which possibly was more interesting, is a nameless whiskey that was made during Prohibition. So it was bottled in, I think, 1931. Bathtub gin. Yeah, that was during Prohibition. And so this this liquor actually was for medicinal purposes. So it was only found in pharmacies and it was completely unnamed. All it, it had just one sticker on it that said aged 18 summers ago. Something like that. Aged 18 summers. <laughs> which I'll put the I'll put pictures of all this whiskey on our, our Facebook page. And on the back, it's like to be used for medicinal purposes. I think it said for something like headaches and jitters. Uh what <laughs> which I think sometimes alcohol causes jitters. But anyway, that's a whole thing. <laughs> it's, um, it's that and the cocaine, really. <laughs> uh, and this <clears throat> was also really good. It was a higher proof. It was a hundred proof, uh, slightly peppery, um, but really, really smooth, really good. I liked it more than I liked the Paul Jones. This was actually my favorite one that we had. And he sells it in his Chapel Hill store for $400 a pour. 
75 bucks for this tasting. So you guys made out Spencer right level Costco value right there. Uh, the last one we had was from 1953. This is lavender. Um, and no, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Old lavender is the one from like 1906. Paul Jones is the one from the 1950s. Anyway, point being old lavender. It was weird. That was the oldest one we had. And it tasted like a leather mitt, like a, like a baseball mitt. Um, but in a good way, if that makes any sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, Go on. It, well, it's hard to explain. I mean, it, it just tastes like nothing that you would, you would ever really have before. Uh, but it did have a leathery taste to it. It was extremely smooth. All three of the whiskeys were very, very smooth um, and had some depth of flavor to them. And basically what Gary was explaining is, you know, you've got this big, whiskey renaissance and you know this explosion of interest in bourbons and so you have these really upscale bourbons like pappy van Winkle or whatever um they're almost impossible to find though they're really difficult to find and he thinks the next emerging market uh in the whiskey game are these sort of rare older antique whiskeys in the secondary market for those because apparently you can get them i mean they're like you go to an estate sale and somebody had like a case in their garage that they forgot about from the 40s or whatever and you can buy it and he sells them at his store. He also told the story about how selling these antique liquors, which haven't gone through the same level of like scrutiny from, you know, the health department or whatever to make sure FDA or whatever, but it was actually illegal in North Carolina until he got the speaker of the house drunk on Pappy Van Winkle at his bar <laughs> and convinced the speaker of the house in North Carolina to pass the Crunkleton bill, which is exactly what it is. The Crunkleton <laughs> bill. Which allows for the sale of antique liquor, which <laughs> that is so North Carolina. That is so North Carolina. <laughs> Such a big boy move. Um, and I, I, last thing I know I'm talking a lot here, but I, I'll try to explain why he told us that these whiskeys tasted so good. And BJ, you can tell me if this makes a rat's bit of sense at all. Um, so basically what he explained is you distill whiskey and you put it, it's clear when you distill it, you put it in a barrel. In the barrel, it goes into the wood, out of the wood, through the seasons. That's what gives its color and its flavor. And you, you keep it there for, you know, as long as you want to extract the flavor that you want to from the wood. Well, what whiskey providers or distillers started doing in the 80s is they said, oh, um, when we take it out of the barrel, if it's at, say, 80 proof, we only say have 100 bottles. But what if we take it out and it's 120 proof and we cut it with water? We're going to have more bottles per barrel. But that's apparently what they do now. And he bashed Maker's Mark for doing this like the entire hour and a half. He just was shitting on Maker's Mark constantly. And his explanation for why this whiskey tastes so good compared to what we're used to is that extra step that they do now where they cut that, you know, that whiskey that comes out of the barrel with, with something else, usually water, uh, and then give it to you. So it was a kind of a once in a lifetime experience to have whiskeys that old and somebody that knowledgeable telling you about them and answering your questions and being generally cool about it. Uh, but it was very relevant to this podcast. I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Yeah. Um, so I'll say 100%. Uh, he's very correct and very wrong at the same time. Um, mm. And so he's very correct in that that's why they taste very different to common offerings. But something that I've talked about uh, on the pod a couple of times before is uh, cast strength and unchill filtered, no. And so um, that basically what he talked about and what happens in a lot of higher end scotches and some bourbons is essentially meshed together. And so what probably happened back people cutting things to 80 proof and pretty much any rail liquor or even like some low to mid tier liquors are going to be sold at 80 proof because of uh, you know, whatever the culture is around that. I actually don't know the, the reasoning why 80 proof became the uh, standard essentially, but, but it did. Um, but there are sort of two other levels that are common in American whiskey. Um, one is going to be cast strength. So um, some of the super rare bourbons that we've talked about, like uh, Pappy Van Winkle, George T. Stagg, um, and some other ones are going to be cast strength. Um, actually the, uh, the French whiskey that, that utterly destroyed me, uh, the last, uh, New Year's was, was another of those offerings. Um, and there are 
Wish they had cut that one. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one thing I'll say, BJ. Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Finish. Uh, I have a little bit more to say, but it, so go ahead and, and I'll keep talking. Sorry to cut you off. I was just going to make the point. Like, I think he was really dumbing down this for his audience. Um, just to, to to give that guy credit, I, I think yeah. he he has his handle on it. But he was he was just trying to explain something to people who don't know shit about whiskey in like five minutes that we yeah. would kind of get the gist of why generally it was better tasting to our palate. A hundred percent. Like, and and so I think that's where he was going. Where it's just like this is the difference between like Maker's Mark, like Buffalo Trace, Buffalo Trace, or um jack daniels or any of those whiskeys that you're used to tasting and and my guess is that with the 75 dollars bar it's you're gonna get a lot of people that are like oh i kind of like whiskey i'm gonna check it out um i would actually reference um the food and wine we went to in atlantic city where i was starting to ask like loads of questions because i was interested in like pretty much everyone that was there was just like i like wine i like food i'm gonna eat and drink um and anyway so so that's sort of the whole uh diatribe that i have fairly often about uncut non-chill filtered and no color added whiskeys is that what you're getting is more true to what whiskey is when it's coming out of the barrel and if you guys ever get the chance even smaller distilleries um if you can go on tours and things like that very often they'll just like especially smaller places will be like hey like you know we'll taste some stuff out of the barrel and they'll drop in a whiskey thief and you'll be able to taste like what's going on with the barrel um, and the whiskey inside of it. And there's a place that um, my girlfriend and I stopped in, in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. And they basically had uh, barrels and, and uh, we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, this one's been, you know, three or four years. And so we got to taste the progression, which was super cool. Um, but, but yeah, that's why I always like trying to get stuff that is sort of the higher percentage. And then, so the one other thing that I was going to talk about is uh, bottle and bond, which is sort of like the weird middling thing that's in the US where there's uh, basically in, and seals up a warehouse and then uh, liquors are bottled at exactly a hundred proof. And so there's this whole super weird, um, set of laws and organizations that deal with that and like how protected it is. And I think that sort of came about a little bit before prohibition and sort of has continued throughout and has become like sort of the next big thing that everybody is obsessed with, which I don't quite understand as much because I don't think those whiskeys are quite as interesting, but um, is super popular now. Yeah, <clears throat> but it, well, and, and I will say this, I, I think it's normal to, when I say these are the best whiskeys I've had to be a little skeptical of it, I was sitting in a table in front of um, a writer and food reviewer for Food and Wine Magazine who was there for the festival. And he just turned to me and he said, I think I've just had the three best whiskeys of my life. Like he's like, this is, I don't understand. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so there's a guy who does it for a living who, who also said this was just and incredible. 100% like experience plays into it a lot. And I mean, not that I'm not trying to at all discount like how good the whiskey is, but like there are things that are so much better because of how you're experiencing it, where you're experiencing sure. it, and what they are. And, um, but, but I am and if you've quite, never quite taken jealous a, of it. If you've never taken a class with Gary Crunkleton, I mean, he he's just he's knowledgeable, but he's extremely funny. He could easily be a stand-up if he wanted to. He had the room rolling for a straight hour and a half, and we didn't get that much whiskey, so it's not like we were all drunk. Yeah, but yeah, that that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, definitely, yeah, it was down. the one time in my life um, where I think I would have paid money. I was enjoying something, but I would have paid money for another one of my friends to be doing it instead of me. Cause I was sitting there like, God, this is BJ needs to be here. This is his thing. So I was about to say, like, if they do it, if, he, if that's something that he does like semi-regularly, like, you know, if he's next year or the year after, that is something that I would, I think it'd be a lot of fun to do an Asheville trip and, and, you know, take the pot, pot out there or something like that. They have a certain location I, in Asheville or is it, was this just a, for the event kind of thing? 
Chow Chow Festival is going to be an Asheville food festival going forward. This was the first time it was ever put on. And I will be, I will monitor the, what Gary does. And if he does this again, BJ, I'll let you know. I'm skeptical that he will only because he, yeah, he told the story enough. about why he told, well, he told the story about why he was even doing it in the first place. And he personally knows the, the woman responsible for organizing the Chow Chow Festival. And a couple of years back, she had asked him to bartend at her wedding, you know, cause he's a renowned guy who makes cocktails. And he said, yeah. And then he backed out like two weeks before because in his words, he just didn't feel like doing it. Um, and so he owed her, he owed her a favor. And so he said, here's what I'll do. I'll bring these bottles of like really old antique whiskey and we can do a tasting for your festival. And she's like, okay. And, and he's like, but you might want to put a price tag on it. It's kind of expensive. And she's like, what should I do? And he's like, ah, I don't know, 75 bucks. And that's really how it came up. And then she's like, well, what should I do? How should I list it? And he's like, ah, something about the history of North Carolina, blah, blah, blah. Like it was all super ad hoc. And it was very, very much like, I'm just, I'm throwing a salad to my friend here. Who's trying to get this festival off the ground. Yeah. Like the other hand, like even more than 75, like see it being a lot of fun, just being like, Hey, like we do this pod, like, can we just like sit and record? We'll do an hour. We'll, you know, I'll chip in a bunch of money and, and, some interesting whiskeys while you talk to us about them but all kind of fun stuff yeah he might do it he talked about he talked about doing interviews and things for certain like independent magazines and whatnot yeah um through the lens of telling us what a big deal he was um very funny guy yeah. very funny guy but anyway that's my story a lot of fun anything else you guys want to talk about uh in this part two episode from september 22nd yeah um so i, I feel like this is going sort of the exact opposite direction and was reminding me of uh, something that I did with that was on brand, but not part of my own brand segment, which is um, things that and and either experience it um, and this sort of came up because I have a sort of running joke with um, one of my office mates who's our lab tech that Trader Joe's is overrated. Pretty much any time that that she talks about all of the best things that she's recently gotten at Trader Joe's, I'm like, ah, Trader Joe's. So, um, and so there are a couple of things that that she's uh, brought in in terms of foods to taste that I hundred percent find interesting, and you guys should try them. They're super gross. Um, they are uh, cotton candy grapes. That yeah, them so much. It like it. I was like, these are gross, and um, I I told my mother, and my girlfriend, like, hundred percent, you have to try these. They're super. And this is another funny thing that that I definitely do with people, and and I think you guys do to to a certain extent. Is like, this was an awful experience. You need to do it too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. So basically, they're they're just grapes that taste kind of like bad cotton candy, like the stuff in the bag, not the stuff that a fair. Um, but so anyway, like she definitely has a lot more of a sweet tooth than I do. And so like I tease her a little bit about, you know, no, oh, well, that's that's overrated. Oh, not quite as overrated as Trader Joe's, but but definitely overrated. Um, and so I, I guess I'll open it up to you guys after I tell a, a couple of mine, you know, what things, what experiences or or uh, you think are are overrated or things that you've tried out and it's just like you you put a lot of expectation into and then then we're let down whatever it is um and so uh those are a little bit of of mine but another one that i'll add in is um i for whatever reason i like even more so on vacation but but just normally like i don't like waiting at, at restaurants to get seated like if it's too popular, I'd rather just go somewhere else. I, I really don't like sitting and waiting for for more than like probably half an hour. Um, and even that, that to, to an extent for me is pushing it. Um, but a lot of people that I know had been raving about a ramen place in um, San Diego and they were opening up. And um, this place always had a line and apparently like the original location would have a line that was usually the wait was like an hour, hour and a half, um, which for ramen just like 
completely um and so basically you could get there early your name in and it would be faster supposedly and so um I went with we got there like half an hour before they opened and there was an already a line of like 20 people like put your name in to get on like the reservation line to then not to wait as long actually opened and we did some other stuff and wandered around and and like uh, like salvation army or stuff like that and just like look through like all the crap that they had but i think the the wait hour and 15 minutes and the ramen was fine and it was just like most overrated experiences that i've ever had and some of that's definitely out, like on me because just waiting online for for stuff is just not my my cup of tea at all um i'm pretty sure you guys have given me shit on the pod for for uh me for for that reason um but of of the the food experiences that I've had in San Diego, and there's some like really amazing places that was just like so overrated and so worth any amount of of the effort putting into to go in to do this. So, okay, not a fan. I I got three that I've thought of. One is food related, and two are not. Uh, I'll go with the food-related one first. Uh, I went to D.C. last year and made a point to go to Mamafuku, mm -hmm. uh, CCDC, which is a chain of restaurants by David Chang, and could not have been more unimpressed. It, the, literally, like, the you texting like while you're just like, man, this is this is so disappointing. Like I, I, I got like the most. I asked the lady what's the most popular thing on the menu, and it was some chicken dish. Literally, it was like fried rice with some chicken and a couple fried eggs on top of it. Maybe a little pesto in there. That was like it. The best thing I had was a pita, uh, like a warm piece of pita with some like homemade jam. But uh, for Mamafuku to have the brand recognition it does, I was astonished at how mediocre to poor the restaurant was. That's the food one. The two non-food ones um, are in the same vein of things I get super excited about, invested in, and I'm always disappointed in. So the first one is any political debate ever. <laughs> I get so hyped for the po for the political debates. I'm so into it. And I'm inevitably, an hour or two, I'm looking around like, this is just not going to... Nobody cares. This is just yelling into the void. Um, and then the second one I'll say is any new iOS update... Because I always read like the tech blogs and they're always like, this is going to be a revolutionary change to Apple's operating system. And I get it and I'm like, oh, a new filter for a picture. That's great. Like it's never anything that materially changes how I deal with my phone. Actually, funny enough, um, the newest Android update allowed for a... That's, that's been so nice. Like everything's dark. Everything's uh, white on black instead of black on white. Uh, it's surprisingly one of, one of the few things that that was touted and and i actually really do enjoy completely unrelated man uh but but like semi-related i recently uh took off the screen protector that i had on my my phone um and then cleaned this clean the screen and then put a new screen protector on there because it, it had been getting a little little chipped on the edge like it was it was getting grungy um christ my screen is beautiful now like my screen is beautiful. Uh, the 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 selfie facing camera is so clear. Like it's it's amazing. I got a new phone basically by by just wiping it off basically and getting all all, all the nasty crap that gets on a phone. <laughs> I 
still have a, a screen protector. I mean, I've got a sort of very marginal case that's very slim that'll protect against the basic stuff, not dropping it from five feet. Um, but it, it is amazing the depth of color out of, out of that camera and, and sort of, it's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> Um, which people may, may say the iPhone uh, camera is overrated and the screen's overrated, but it's really quite beautiful when it's clean. Spencer? I, I've got two. I'll do a food-related one first. Uh, I would say any vegan or vegetarian... No, it isn't. I would say any vegan or vegetarian replacement for meat that is directly trying to compete with a meat product. Like, have any of you guys tried the Impossible Burger before? Fascinating that you said that, because um, Stone has a version of the Impossible and honestly, I thought it was delicious. Like, I'm fascinated that that you do not like it, but it also is like, I assume it, it is restaurant-based. It's, like, it's not that I don't like it. I think that vegan vegetarian food is best when it is not trying to represent itself as a meat-based product or the equivalent of meat-based product, of where, for me, whatever I try it, I'm like, this is fine. But I'm getting a burger. This isn't a burger. This isn't meat. This isn't what I. This, is, this isn't what the category of food that I've been seeking right now. If it was in its own category, if it wasn't advertising itself as a burger, I would probably enjoy it better as its own thing. Because the Impossible Burger is fine. It's you know it's even pretty good. But whenever I'm having, I'm like, this isn't the burger I ordered. This isn't the experience I ordered. And the fact that it's trying to actively compete with that, I think, is a fool's errand because. It's not that, it's its own unique product. It's better off going in that category rather than directly trying to compete with something that it's never going to be. Well, I, well, I will push back a little bit. I think everybody's about to, but um, I'll let you go firstly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it's a fool's errand. I'm just gonna say that it's those companies are doing really, really well right now. So, I mean, it, the, the market is bearing out that people do actually like this product. Anyway, I'm not disputing that fact. You're, you're... Question. Here's it for my burger medium. <laughs> I don't know if yes. Very fair point, Billy. For for a burger, um, for most places. Anyway, but I th I think it's also very restaurant dependent and like commit to to like having an impossible burger that isn't just like we took our burger, swapped out the patties, and we cook it everything like everything's exactly the same except we swap out the patty rather than somebody like tasting it and actually being like okay I'm going to develop a sandwich with this as being a burger. I fully agree. It's part of my point of where it is its own unique product and it should be tailored based on that. If you're purely offering it as we took this and it's put in there the exact same as the meat, but now we have a different patty, it's not the experience. It's not what actually should be, be done as because it's a different product. I'd also so point out, I don't, sorry, BJ, I feel like I'm stepping all over you this podcast. Um, uh, Spencer, I also think you don't get any sort of enjoyment or jollies out of not eating meat, right? Because that's part of it for some people. They yeah, don't, don't really care either way. Yeah, I can tell. But they don't care about they are eating less meat now due to this product. And they, they like that because it reduces their carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. Except the burger works better than except the burger works better than some in terms of trying to just do an active replacement of where we're not we're not trying to offer our own unique product. We're saying this is the alternative meat, try this. 
I mean, I've, I've tried uh, like vegan sausage, which does not work in terms of d doing that or whatever else. But I would also say that fine. like some do a lot worse. Bean patties and like all the things that came before, like most of them are just not good. Like they're they're not even like a good sandwich. And so, a couple of things. One. Did you go to like your 1950s burger joint that does that, that you share milkshakes with, <laughs> with your girlfriend? And that's the place that you it was got it? a place like that, yes. Yeah. Okay. So again, I feel like when you have a place like that to substitute something, that's just not the way to do it. And the other thing is like, like I would sure. say that if you treat it like burger, so uh, like Sutton's, a burger like that, I think it does an impressively good job as, as a replacement for that. But we're going with the uh, overrated uh, experience that you had. And I think this is the, the perfect version of it for you because you went to, you went expecting a 1950s burger and milkshake and you didn't get that. And so 100%, this is hashtag on brand for, for Spencer because you went to the weirdest place to get an impossible <laughs> burger um, and, and it was disappointing. So, gold star. I could have gone to Burger King. Second, <laughs> Levi, stop with this slander. The impossible burger at Burger King is good. Say, like, I, I would it, actually Burger there. King to do a decent job good if you guys have recommendations for where i can best experience a vegan or vegetarian burger to get the how it should be properly done i'm happy to happy to go with it. at least my experiences so far of where i did not at any point think i would do a meat equivalent for what i ordered <laughs> thank you spencer i'm making uh impossible burgers this afternoon my second one okay so spencer go, go before you go go too far um, I do have a recommendation, and if you take me up on it, I will be very happy. So in, in Escondido, they have a, an, an incredibly good Impossible Burger, and, and I would love to have you out here. If I can find a way to be in California at a particular occasion, I will. This is, this is an example of where I tried this wanting to have you know, a good experience, and I did not dislike it. It was its own unique product. But it's just one thing of where you're directly saying this is better than meat or this is a complete replacement for meat, which is what was being marketed to me as. It was not that. And that was the disappointment attached to it. Or, I don't know whoever says it's better. I think the idea is if you, you want to introduce a diet of less meat in your life, it's a helpful product to do that so you can scratch the burgerage. Which was not what was presented to me as. Well, uh, also, I think that the appellation of it is better than any other replacement product that it came before it, basically, is 100% correct. That's very fair, yeah. It, it was much better than the various versions that it had before. Yeah, it is better. My, my other one is uh, with, with respect to travel, of where um, several cities are like very much market themselves as being like the city you have to go to before you die or the most romantic city. Cities like, say, like Paris or Venice, those cities are overrated as shit. They are overrated to the point of where there is actually a diagnosed medical condition called Paris Syndrome for people primarily from East Asia who go That's to the, the city. That's the Japanese. Oh, my God. You're going with the Japanese getting, getting psychiatric help? Oh, my God. Yeah, it is there. Have you guys ever heard of Paris Syndrome? It's a condition of where primarily Japanese individuals who have invested themselves so much in what Paris is going to be, it's going to be a once-lifetime experience, for such profound disappointment, they have physical health effects, they require treatment, and they're obviously intervening to help them. And so... Let's go with that. I'm noticing a trend here, Spencer. I feel like you just pick up that people have told you things and it's really super ambiguous. Like you're like, somebody told you that you have to go to Paris before you die. Like, I don't know if you read a magazine or something at some point. Paris was actually you seem to have this sort of feedback twice, and it is just a dirty, annoying little city. Uh, I've I did I've been a variety of European cities. Paris was 
my main experience with Paris was there was trash everywhere. It was overcrowded and everyone was annoyed that I was there. And that was pretty much my experience of Paris pretty much every time I've been there. Everywhere. Boston several times and it is at least I went to Boston knowing that would be what I was going into. <laughs> that but a city built to confuse pirates of where Boston's a city of where you are driving and then suddenly on a major road, there's just a brick wall there. It is a very confusingly laid out city. So I understand trash everywhere gets me. I understand where you're coming from in Paris being I think this is how much going to cities compared to and I think Lee would kind of be more on your side than me and Lee. Go on. But I'm not I'm not sure about you, Levi. I just know that you hate cities. I like I'm unsure about how you approach them, but Spencer like <laughs> what? That you hate cities? I I have no clue why you hate like in the middle of nowhere and having no contact with civilization. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Okay. Uh, I can't get over the trash everywhere. Like Spencer, please go on. You've not, been, you've not been to Africa. Like it's just fucking amazing to me. You would say that Paris has trash everywhere. Like go go to Dakar and then come back. Yeah, there's the three categories, trash. of course. <laughs> just trash everywhere. What? Like, Spencer, like I I hundred percent like have this image of my in my mind of you getting like a TripAdvisor book. And then like seeing what's near to your hotel and doing like the top 10 things in that like area and like checking off it's like, well, we can do like six out of the 10 here. Uh, you know, it's like one, two, seven, eight, nine. Uh, and then we'll like next place and, and do the same thing. And I know I'm projecting, but, but like, this is, this is how I imagine you like doing your vacations and I just, I think that, that that that's the best way to get an overrated experience. Okay, that's fair. Is that not how you do it? There is an element of that. <laughs> uh, I've learned that it's better than actually to go with other people who know the area or even go with a proper tour. Like, you know, like, Lee, were you going on a Viking cruise or me going, me going with a tour? That's honestly the better way to do it just because they get you past a lot of the shit. They actually put you on things that aren't just the beaten path that is a better way to experience these kind of trips. I've been once, and it was a unique experience. Don't go there in the summer. There will be more people on large, massive, thousand-people Chinese tours than there will be anything that you actually experience about the city. Ooh. Stay in the villa. Summer. Don't go in the summer for this reason. <laughs> Thousands of them. They move in herds. Yeah. Spencer, does Venice have trash everywhere? 
Venice was relatively clean by 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 comparison. But like London, I actually quite enjoy. London seems like a much better run city than Paris is, just from my experiences with it. But I've been to London a lot more times than I've been to Paris. So I like London, Levi. Going on that, I had the same experience near Yellowstone, which was like so many times we'd be on like these sort of one lane in each direction roads, and there'd be like six to eight. Uh, like Mercedes SUVs with numbers and like Asians with walkie talkies and they'd be stopped and like you couldn't really get around them and they just like travel in convoys everywhere and it was just the funniest thing when you're trying to go anywhere and there's just like a gaggle of them just like wandering around yeah. like walkie talkies and driving hilariously poorly when there's only one road and one but they're go ahead, Leva. With their Huawei fucking surveillance equipment. They're stealing all our secrets and shit. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Watch Alex Jones. He'll tell you all about it. I literally cannot have a Huawei phone. The federal government has... has <laughs> yes, I, I work on government mm -hmm. programs and the government has issued a specific regulation to the federal acquisition regulation um, prohibiting the use of uh, Chinese, basically nine different companies that the Chinese government has, telecommunication companies that the Chinese government has taken, Huawei, ZTE, a few of them. Uh, so yeah, I, I literally can't. Yeah, kind of have to. No, people people like your girlfriend. The researchers would yell at me if I didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a good episode. I got to tell you all about this fancy whiskey experience. And Spencer got to just out of, out of left field smash the Impossible Burger. Just really didn't see that coming. <laughs> Trash everywhere Paris. That's the net, by the way, next round of Team Mangum Talks t-shirts, Trash Everywhere Paris. <laughs> uh, I think hashtag Trash Tag Paris. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Spencer, figure out hashtags. Get it going. You want to cover anything else? Well, thanks, everybody. I enjoyed it. This is part two of our episode recorded on September 22nd.